You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, David Bowyer explores the role of the commons in using ancient and new practices to break free of the outdated, unsustainable economic systems of our world. I do think the commons can help elicit more love-based responses, more sense of dignity and respect in a way that the conventional political establishment and its institutions, and certainly market institutions, have lost track of. Find the commons that matter to you in your uh, sphere of of life, whether it's local or digital or urban, and see how far you can push the, well, to use the title of your show, The Revolution Through Love. Hello, this is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Aguanu, Wuligaskit. Welcome, and it is a beautiful day here in the Dawnland, a little bit chilly. I'm coming to you from my home along the Penobscot River in Bunawabskek Territory in central Maine. And I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, um, who's always a joy to talk with, Miss Rivera Sun, and our special guest today, David Bollier. Hi, Rivera. Hi, Sherry. Out here in New Mexico, it is also beautiful and sunny. We did get snow a few days ago, but the for the most part, the five or six foot long bull snakes are out and about slithering around the house and celebrating spring. We are going to have yet another amazing conversation on Love and Revolution Radio. Today, we decided to dive into the commons and to go into this really important subject. We actually got the guy to talk about the commons. If we're going to have one person versus, you know, a whole collective of people talking about the commons, if you're going to go to one person to really explain this concept, that person is David Bollier. He's an author and an activist. His uh, book, Think Like the Commoner, is a very classic text on the commons, even though it's newer. Uh, He is also the co-founder of the Common Strategies Group, and he also writes amazing articles and essays on the commons, which can be found at his website, www.bolier.org. Welcome to the show, David. It's great to be here. David, we were hoping that we could start out the show today with you just explaining to our listeners, what is the commons? Can you give us a general overview? There are people that aren't going to have any idea what you're talking about when you're talking about the commons. So can you inform them for us? Sure. Well, the, the easiest way and the first way that people under, come to understand the commons is as our shared wealth, shared resources. And this can consist of anything from something like uh, our a common in a community, which is big in New England. I live in Massachusetts, to uh, the federal research that we all support as taxpayers or public lands or the internet as a shared group of a shared set of protocols that allow different types of computers and networks to intercommunicate with each other. So the easiest way to understand the commons is our shared wealth. But the commons is more than just physical or 
ownable things, collectively ownable things. It's a social system for managing the, and governing a community for the benefit of everyone. And so it's in contrast to the market, which operates for individual property and individual investors and corporations primarily. So it's a different way of relating to each other and to nature uh, in the course of managing uh, the resources that we need to meet our needs. So that's maybe a general definition. And I, I hope in our conversation we can get into the variety of specifics, which go from digital commons on the Internet to physical resources of nature to uh, urban commons and, and on and on. What about that governing structure? Is it, you know, we have so many different kinds of governance existing in the world, everything from dictators to consensus-based collectives and communities that operate on total anarchy. What is the form of governance that most typically arises with a shared resource of a commons? Well, it will vary in part on the resource itself because digital resources, for example, don't get used up. Uh, you can copy them for virtually nothing. However, water or land or wild game can get used up. They're finite. So it'll depend partly on the type of resource. But you could say that a commons will have shared governance in the sense, in the sense of the people who are using the resource are the ones who make the rules and the governance scheme. So it's self-organized. It's not imposed by government or regulatory agencies or courts. The community itself makes the rules, and as a result, they tend to have rules that are fair and equitable and inclusive for everyone involved. And it's not based on, for example, the amount of money you might have or the uh, quality of your lawyers. So you see how, for example, a lot of digital communities, open source software communities, will devise their own systems for relating to each other and managing the code they produce. By contrast, you see all sorts of ancient commons for water or farmland or fisheries where for generations indigenous peoples or certain subsistence communities will have a set of protocols for managing the resource so that it doesn't get used up or destroyed. So it's a very ecologically minded way of managing a resource once again, in contrast to the market, which tends to rip and run and destroy the res natural resources. So I guess the short answer is there's no single form of governance for a commons, but they, they, are, they are similar in that they're self-organized and uh, have their own rules from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And there's a whole body of scholarship on this uh, associated with the, the great scholar and Nobel Prize winner Eleanor Ostrom who helped identify the design principles for successful commons. As an indigenous person who was raised to have a basic worldview that looks at my place within this full realm of creation, not through anthropocentric eyes, but more uh, universal biocentric as part of the collective creation, this whole idea seems really germane to my basic understanding of my place in the world. But it doesn't seem to be that that's the understanding of everyone. We've moved far afield from that ancient connection that we had with the earth. One of the things that really interests me uh, that you talk about is 
this idea of green governance and its associated human right and how that can fulfill a necessary ethic and logic that's been absent from um, our larger social contracts and social gospels for a long, long time. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the correlation between green governance and human rights. Well, human rights and the commons have a long history together in the sense that we all should have a human right to have the basic things we need to survive. And in fact, the Magna Carta, when it was signed in the uh, 12th century, was precisely this. It gave commoners the right of access to the forest, which the king and his noblemen were trying to privatize for themselves. And you have to realize, of course, that at the time, people depended upon the forest for all aspects of their life, from fish and game to wood for their their shelters and fires and and so on. Well, nowadays, you could say that with a market-based economy, we don't even have that level of right of access to the things we need for our survival. You have to have money or you don't have access. And in fact, you have lots of people around the world who don't have access to water or land to grow food or other basic necessities. So to talk about the commons is to start to assert a moral and political claim on the powers that be, especially the nation state and corporations, that certain resources should be inalienable. They should not be for sale and they should be accessible to everyone on an equitable basis. And this is a core element of being a human being, which the market economy seems to have forgotten. And this helps us, I think, reintegrate ourselves with our relationship with Earth and to each other in a way that we've lost in modern times, where the the economy, so-called, is uh, the definition of our social lives and morality, as opposed to, I think, a deeper spiritual and personal and social wisdom that I think we're trying to recover. So to talk about the commons is to begin that conversation of recovering that. I think indigenous people have a lot to teach us, meaning modern industrial uh, men and women, about how one might know and live and be in a different way because so so many of their traditions and rituals and values are precisely about that. And I think that's what a lot of us in modern life are trying to reconnect with and reinvent for the place we do live in. Because it's not as if we can all go back to a a pre-enlightenment time. At the same time, there's a lot of values and ways of existing that we need to rediscover and and resurrect. So um, I, I see the commons as a vehicle for doing that. David, what is the difference between a commons and, say, like our public library, our public parks, our public uh, utilities, our public water system? Um, The water system came to mind because many of us are dealing with water issues that come about from an increasingly privatized uh, water utility in a public municipality. So it leads me to really start to wonder what what exactly is the difference between a common system and a public uh, body like that? That's a great question. We tend to think in terms of public and private, and public correlates with government, and private seems to correlate with uh, business and corporations. But the commons is asserting a third category that is separate and distinct from both of them. So, but to get back to your question about 
public libraries or publicly administered things, those are, of course, government-administered resources that help meet our needs. And, of course, they serve a very valuable purpose. But we've also seen how government can has a tendency to enter into these self-serving, unholy alliances with business, so-called public-private partnerships, in which they essentially give away public resources or give cheap and preferential access to public resources to private corporations and businesses. We see this with water and land and the, the airwaves used for broadcasting and many other things, which business gets for free or at highly discounted rates. And so you see the giveaway of our patrimony, our shared inheritance, our common wealth by government. And moreover, these things are generally administered through bureaucracies and a very complicated legal system that's inaccessible to most people. But when you start to talk about the commons, you're starting to talk about people having a more direct, meaningful role in managing and govern those resources. They're not simply electing someone who, and then those elected people assign a bureaucrat to deal with it. With the commons, there is a more direct control over, for example, municipal water systems or you might have public spaces that are managed by commoners in conjunction with government. Uh, for example, you see in Italy these days, there's a whole lot of experiments in city government entering into contracts with commoners to manage public spaces or kindergartens or uh, senior centers and social services. And so you don't have public-private partnerships. You have public social or public commons partnerships. And the whole idea is to get beyond some of the stifling bureaucracy which doesn't meet people's needs or speak to their hearts and souls or give them any responsibilities or participatory authority to open up that space, to give people more ability to develop themselves in their city. There's a lot of urban commons, for example, where citizens are working with government to do urban design and to uh, actually, as a neighborhood, manage public spaces. So to talk about the commons is to sort of turn government uh, 45 degrees or more to empower citizens and shift power and initiative uh, and participation to ordinary people to control the resources that they need in their lives. David, I think that we'll agree, you and I, that there is a great need to shift our ideas around valuation. And one of the things that I wonder about when I'm reading a lot of the material that's out there on the commons is taking our economic thought and bringing in dialogue about natural capital and its implications on our social well-being enough? Or do we really have to go further than that and begin a dialogue that connects us in a familial way to the natural world and the elements of our survival and shift away from these ideas of commodifying all elements of our existence and simply turning them into part of this capitalistic system? Because it seems like that type of valuation is just a perpetuation of the system that's led us to the place that we're in right now. And I'm always very concerned when I hear people talking about natural capital. You raise an excellent point uh, in the sense that you can talk about the commons within the worldview and framework of conventional economics, 
which a lot of people do and has a certain legitimacy, but it doesn't get us out of the problems we've gone into of private property rights and marketization run amok. And I think ultimately the commons asks us to shift into a different life world uh, than that of homo economicus, the economic idea that we're rational, utility-maximizing materialists. And in fact, I think the commons asks us to have relationships and a different identity with the resources we manage. And so if we love those resources, we don't just simply consider them a commodity that we put a price tag on and that's the value of them. They're part of our essence and being and identity and we want to preserve them for future generations. So I think the commons really wants to move us in a different direction than the conventional economic discourse or the conventional political discourse. So uh, that's what I think is a commons is about, is developing those different types of relationships with with people, whether it's these natural resources that we're quite, I think, quite alienated and distant from in our modern economy, or simply um, the relationships we want to have online about a, a resource. So I, I, I think you raise a very good point. The challenge is how do we move into that different life world and world per, worldview perspective? It, it takes some effort and it takes a community to help understand that we need a different valuation of things. There's a really interesting historical footnote that goes on around the commons and the destruction of European-based commons that coincides very dramatically in the history books with the persecution of the earth-based indigenous or pagan practices of Europe, particularly England comes to mind. And then there's another historical footnote around some, uh, the development of a concept called the tragedy of the commons, uh, which I'll let you explain more to our listeners, but really is very much rooted in a complete misunderstanding of these ideas and concepts that you and Sherry are bringing up. That the tragedy of the commons is this idea that uh, rational consumeristic capitalist sort of human beings would just take and take and take and take from the usually economic, ecological nature-based resource uh, to maximize their own profit and would quickly destroy the commons. Whereas what you and Sherry are bringing up is that we as human beings have values that extend not just to ourselves and not just to our human family, but also to the rest of the natural systems, these other beings which we share this planet with, which we rely upon for our survival. Can you speak a little bit about the the way these values shifted historically around the time of the um, enclosure of the commons, the persecution of earth-based practices in Europe, and the tragedy of the commons, this whole kind of multi-strand ev- epic that's changing um, and has led us to where we are today. Could you speak a little bit about that? Let's start with the <clears throat> enclosure movements in England, which are kind of this historical metaphor for our times today. In you know, for many centuries, there were people who managed the pastures and forests and farmlands and orchards in England and Europe as commons. Uh, they were perhaps uh, on the, the land owned by a nobleman, uh, a lord, but they managed those resources sustainably in common. But then, as capitalism began to 
early capitalism began to grow, there was an interest by the kings and uh, landed gentry to privatize and marketize those resources. And this began the great enclosure movement where all those natural resources were essentially taken away from commoners who were dispossessed so that those pastures, for example, could be used to raise sheep for the growing export market in wool. Uh, or forests could be uh, leveled to, for their timber. So in short, you had the arrival of a whole new mentality of monetizing resources, privatizing it, and developing accumulations of capital. And that's the tradition that was begun then with the enclosure of the commons and continues to this day where you have the same privatization and marketization of everything from life forms and genes to words and smells under trademark and copyright law and patent law. So you have this massive individual privatization of everything. And so you have to understand that this is a fictional or contrived worldview of what a human being should be. And, of course, standard economics has developed this fictional ideal of the rational utility-maximizing individual as the, the DNA, you might see, say, for the economy. Well, in the late 1960s, an ecologist named Garrett Hardin wrote this essay that became quite famous called The Tragedy of the Commons. And he essentially told a, a parable saying that if, any, if you have any shared resource – such as a pasture with, with uh, farmers and cattlemen on it who have cattle or sheep on it, they will overexploit the resource and it will become ruined, the so, and that will be the so-called tragedy. And therefore, any shared resource will be a failed management regime. Well, once again, he was projecting the same ahistorical, socially abstract idea that rational individuals will overuse a resource when, in fact... If you look at history, if you do field work and see how indigenous peoples or subsistence communities actually manage their rivers, their water, their fishery, their farmlands, you see that they, they learn to communicate with each other. They negotiate. They work out rules that work for everyone, and it's, it becomes sustainable. In other words, a tragedy of the commons is not inevitable. Yes, there are instances of over-exploitation and overuse of resources, but there are vast numbers of successful cases of communities coming together to manage the resource successfully. Well, this comes down to a different worldview than that of the capitalist or the investor or standard economics. And so the commons really is about trying to recover and resurrect this alternative, more integrated, organic, holistic view of what a human being is living on earth in a body, in a social community, and not as this individual abstraction the way economics says we are. And so that's essentially the struggle that we're dealing with right now. What, how shall we conceptualize human beings and how shall public policies and economics be crafted to fulfill our basic needs as human beings? And I think the commons is asserting we have a broader, richer, socially and geographically situated reality that has to be expressed, and the commons is about trying to do that. I think one of the interesting pieces here that kind of weaves its way into the discussion 
no matter who you're talking with about the commons is this whole notion that people are trying to look at these problems from a real linear mindset because that's the way people have been trained and conditioned to think. But there's an emerging ethos around this that there really is no technical solution to the problems that we're facing, that it really underlying all of this is a real deep moral uh, and ethical sickness, and that the solution is really seated in uh, addressing that moral and ethical sickness that's pervaded our society. And so when you're talking to people and you're speaking with diverse groups that are addressing these multitude of issues that we've created as human beings on the planet and trying to capture those under this umbrella of the commons. Do you find that it's difficult to be able to weave in these discussions about the moral and ethical problems underlying these larger social problems that we have? Or do you find that it actually enhances your ability to have human to human communication around these issues with the people that you're inhabiting because sometimes it can get really intellectual and again that oftentimes takes us away from the essence of what we're trying to capture in bringing people back into a harmonious relationship with the natural world and uh, I wonder if you find it challenging to bring in that moral and ethical language in some of these more academic settings to get people to really start challenging themselves and that mind-body disconnect that seems to be at the heart of the issues that we're facing. Wow, you raise a lot of great issues and that we could talk for a long time about all of this. Yes, I think they're moral and ethical issues and I think they do, a lot of people respond to them quite positively. The problem is that that's not quite enough in the sense that many of these ethical and moral identities that we have are wrapped up in institutional structures, in ways of doing things and invisible worldviews. So, for example, I'll talk to my Washington liberal friends, and they're so oriented towards the federal government and law as currently constituted and public policy and electoral politics as the answers for everything that they can't quite see that something that's highly decentralized, local, and bottom-up could be consequential and meaningful. So part of the challenge is combining the moral and ethical arguments with new structures of managing resources and ways of relating to them, which is, I think, what the commons is about and why it doesn't immediately register on conventional mainstream political radar screens. Because it's not as if we can pass a law and suddenly the commons will be taken care of. The commons requires us to engage directly, and this is a different capacity we need to develop in ourselves. The great historian of the commons, Peter Leinbau, says there is no commons without commoning, meaning the commons is really a verb. It's an activity. You do it. It is, therefore, in, re- in real time and your uh, real consciousness and not this ahistorical abstraction the way economists might or politicians might talk about it. So I think the commons really is at heart 
about recovering our sense of presence and aliveness and connection with each other and seeing that that is the core of our humanity, that is the core of a rejuvenating morality and ethic. But that requires us us to shift in some ways, not simply to elect someone else or to pass another law. It means we have to work hard where we are to make the commons and in the process change ourselves for the better. Towards that end, towards that effort of changing ourselves and changing our own lives, what are some forms of commons that are in our contemporary modern day lives that people can participate in right now? Like say they're inspired by this conversation and they want to go out tomorrow and start actually participating in a commons. What are some that they might find in their communities? What are some that you participate in? Uh, how can people directly begin this process? Well, you first have to realize that not everybody uses the language of the commons, even though I think they would be that you could say they are commoning. So it's not as if you can go to Google or the, the yellow pages of the phone book and find out, oh, who's doing commoning? I can't think, I, however... There are all sorts of local activities, whether you're in a, a city or a countryside or online, where people are doing active commoning. And I think that essentially you can, you can learn that if you have an open, welcoming community that allows, gives people responsibilities as well as entitlements, the ability to help influence the rules that govern that community, and to manage it sustainably over time. And we'll be back after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolence. we're exploring the commons this week, we can't let the show go by without mentioning the levelers and the diggers. This was the name of a political party that formed in 1647 and drew its title from earlier people's movements in which the commoners had leveled the ditches and dug up the fences that had been built to enclose the commons and keep the people out. Life was tough for the commoners of Britain in the 1600s. A series of laws and royal proclamations were stripping them of the right to hunt fish, gather, and till the land they relied on for survival. As landowners sought increased profits in the rise of early capitalism, they began to kick commoners off the land, clear-cut the forests, and build fences to keep people out and the profitable herds of sheep in. Things came to a head during the Midland Revolt of 1607. Under the leadership of a tinker named John Reynolds, who was known locally as Captain Pouch, the people began to tear down the fences and fill in the ditches that had been built to keep them out of the commons. Captain Pouch told the commoners that he had the authority of the king and heaven, and that the mysterious contents of his pouch would protect them. He told the people to use no violence, but to pull down the fences and fill in the ditches. 3,000 people came out at Hillmorton in Warwickshire. 5,000 more joined the leveling and digging at Coatsbach and Lancashire. On June 8, 1607, 1,000 people gathered at Newton. The landowners there ordered local militia to violently break up the people. The local militia refused. 
The landowners and their armed servants then gathered, and after tense exchanges, they charged the crowd. Forty to fifty people were killed, including women and children. The leaders of the revolt were captured, drawn, and quartered. Captain Pouch was executed. The contents of his mysterious, all-protecting pouch contained only a hunk of moldy cheese. The struggles over the commons stretch across hundreds of years of history, right up into our contemporary lives. In the 1600s, nonviolent action was largely unknown. It would take another 300 years for the word boycott to emerge, and Gandhi was centuries from arriving on the scene. The mass movement to stop the privatization of the water commons in Cochabamba, Bolivia, for example, was still 400 years away. Yet we owe a debt to the people of Great Britain who rose up to protect the commons in 1607 for swearing the use of violence as they non-cooperated with the structures of privatization. They may not have succeeded in their lifetimes, but their story offers us the opportunity to learn more as we work for justice today using the 400 years of global experimentation and nonviolent action to help us accomplish a more just, sustainable, and respectful world. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. Our featured music this week comes from Gemendo, which is a Creative Commons licensing music site. This week's music is by Maddie Palanen, Find more of this music on gemendo.com. And now, let's return to speaking with David Bullier about the commons, past, present, and future. So if you're talking about a geographic community, it can be, there's lots of different local food projects from permaculture and community-supported agriculture and organic food and the slow food movement and so on where people are essentially trying to reintegrate their experience of food and their, their uh, consumer habits with a richer post-market existence, you might say, where they're making a commitment to that region and to this type of food. So there's food, local foods, one example. In cities, especially in Europe, but in the U.S. as well, there's quite a, a lot of interest in urban commons or the city as commons. And to talk about the city of the commons as a commons is to say we, the individual and groups, have a moral and political claim on these resources of the city, the public spaces, the facilities. We have a right. There's actually a right to the city movement going on. And so there's a lot of efforts to mutualize the benefit of, for example, uh, having cooperatives in the city so the there's, there's some uh, municipal cooperatives that have started to be an alternative to Uber and Airbnb, for example, so that the benefits can be more widely shared and you just don't have absentee market interests taking over neighborhoods for, for rentals. You have a lot of sharing of bicycles and tools. You have efforts to manage parks and public buildings, theater spaces, arts, arts and culture as a common in the city. These are the kinds of efforts that, you know, it's not just like a nonprofit where you have some organization that's managing it. It's something that's participatory where people can become involved directly in the management of things. And then another huge realm where there's lots of access for participation is the online world 
where you have countless different communities from open access publishing to open science to open data to open design and manufacturing, actually building things like furniture and cars using open source principles. There's a group called FarmHack that's devising all sorts of agricultural equipment that is globally designed through a community but locally produced uh, cheaply and modularly through open source principles. So with a little bit of effort, you can find if you have a certain passion or talent, you can find an, a, commu- a community that's devoted to commenting in one fashion. Maybe I'd invite people to look at my website, uh, bolier.org, which has a, a blog role of a variety of different commons websites, and you can even use the search function and find out if there's some project involved in something that you're passionate about. One of the other things that is interesting, challenging, is this idea of defining solutions for these challenges that we face that some have this idea about, you know, what is optimum population numbers? What is the maximum good per person? You know, that comes from the the tragedy of the commons. And being able to identify those factors. For instance, there are multiple definitions of good. For me, good is living in a rural environment in close connection to some wilderness. To others, it may be living in an urban center. And so as we're moving forward and working out what is the acceptable theory here on weighing and defining what's necessary in order to achieve the ultimate goal, which is survival, how do we look at some of these more challenging nonlinear variations that are laying in front of us and defining what is the best way to achieve the goals of maintaining, sustaining, nurturing, and protecting the commons, whatever your common may be, in a way that allows space for everyone to exist within that structure? Well, I don't think we're necessarily going to have those answers in advance. I think those answers come through doing. And, for example, we don't have larger infrastructures or uh, geographically large governance things, bodies for commons. I think that a lot of these things are going to emerge as a lot of local commons grow in strength, maybe start to regionalize, and people will say, oh, we could be so much more effective or many more people could become involved if we devise this new system architecture, you might say. And this is on the principles of emergence. If you're if you're if you study this idea of complexity theory, when living systems reach a certain stage of development, they creatively want to move to a new level of organization that can more effectively meet their needs. And this is arguably people theorize what's happened in evolution over over millennia. And I think we we do see this idea of emergence on shorter time scales all the time where a certain colony of ants or bees or something reaches a level before they start to reach a new stage. I think that we're going to see that with we are seeing that in the commons where as you reach a certain critical mass of commons in a region or in the online world, you see this all the time. People say, 
we need to think about the larger structures by which all of this is governed and devise a new structure there. So I guess that may sound like an evasion, but I think it's really a realistic idea of how a living system evolves. It's not as if on day one we can anticipate on you know, years ahead what it's going to look like. And I know that you know, I've been studying the commons for 15 years, and I could not have predicted the evolution of things since. So I think the answer is we have to do this by doing it. And the, the answers will occur to us, they'll uh, become clearer as we participate in it. And I, you know, I don't think that we're going to have some either Moses coming down from the mountaintop or some academic expert telling us the proper way forward. We're going to have to discover the proper way forward ourselves. If we look historically, we just referenced earlier in the show the Great Enclosure Period, and in some ways, speaking with Sherry about the commons makes me really reflect on the conquest of the American continents as maybe the second massive enclosure. And then we're in a period of another wave of of enclosure where predatory capitalism, or capitalism as usual, is actually assaulting the last remnants, or maybe not the last, but the, the the remaining and the reviving and the emerging commons-based systems. We're seeing this with the internet uh, as the telecom companies seek to control our access to this commonly created system. We're also seeing it around water right now as a major commons that is becoming a very precious commodity to the market-based system and is being assaulted by privatization. Can you speak a little bit about what I'm just tongue-in-cheek maybe calling the third great enclosure and what it means for our lives today and what it means, why we should be conscious of what's going on? Another enclosure happening is in our our air, our atmosphere, with the like cap-and-trade, carbon-trading schemes, where they're actually commodifying air, sometimes for like noble purposes to try to rein in climate change and carbon emissions, but it's kind of concerning for me. Well, I think you're right that you know the, the whole process of enclosure has not only – it's not a historical fact. It is an ongoing, growing fact because we've never had such powerful technologies – or expansions of certain types of law to expand private property control for market purposes. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about, you know, life forms being patented in parts of our culture, but the thing that's most chilling to me is this financialization of flows of nature into new types of securities instruments so that you're financializing the flow of water or fish or timber from a region as something that can be commodified even further in the financial, in an abstract financial sense, such that that whole ecosystem then has to start producing to generate the revenues for those securities. Really frightening stuff. My only point is we are seeing these radical extensions of commodification, marketization, financialization, more than ever before, of elemental systems of the earth and of our human society. And I think that one reason we have such interest in the commons is that people are starting to recognize this is crazy. This is destroying uh, human sanity and the earth itself. And people are starting to say that the commons is a way we can start to morally 
reassert control over these things and push back on this worldview that is, in fact, a third uh, historical enclosure. And I think it is the the struggle of our time. It has not yet quite been engaged because mainstream politics is still fighting the last generation's battles. And I don't think they've quite gotten to a post-capitalist vision or sensibility yet, at least in electoral and mainstream politics. But I think that a lot of people are feeling in their everyday and local lives of this dynamic and starting to rebel against it. And I think that's the discussion we need to have, and we're going to have to have some confrontations with capital over this. One of the things that this brings to mind for me, this whole idea of commodifying our air, um, some of the initial discussions surrounding the development of and protection of the commons was around this notion that, you know, the air and waters cannot be fenced. And so in order to prevent their complete destruction, that there must be other coercive means, such as laws or taxes to make it cheaper for a polluter to treat his pollutants than to discharge them into the environment untreated. Unfortunately, the systems that have been developed are, just as you said, they're simply creating a whole new system of of trade involving another basic resource um, or source, as I like to say, of our survival. You know, rather than looking at it as a resource or as a commodity or as part of capital, that it's actually a source, an elemental source of our survival. And so it seems like we're we're misguided even in our attempts to address these problems. And the law, which is oftentimes behind the times and comes up kind of to adapt to newly emerging problems or newly perceived aspects – plays a key role in that. And one of the things that you talked about was that these rights that are associated with green governance, that they're going to be anchored in both substantive substantive and procedural justice. And I'm wondering, as an attorney, I'm curious, what exactly does that mean to you? What does that look like? Which areas do you feel are most pertinent to be addressed through various laws you know, we have to be able to kind of mold a system that protects us, that prevents further harm as we're moving forward so that we can address behind the scenes the larger problems that are emerging. Um, so the law is going to play a necessary role in it, maybe to prevent further harm, to help guide people until our consciousness catches up to where we need to be in order to ensure our survival. So can you talk about what you meant by some of those substantive and procedural justice areas? Well, I I will take actually a step back from that and say that there's a whole body of state-based law that we're dealing with, which has been mostly oriented towards advancing the market vision of, of progress and technology and economic growth. And part of the challenge of the commons is using a hostile or indifferent body of law devised by the state to serve the purposes of commoning. And so far, much, most of the instances of using law to support the commons in the deeper sense, meaning the non-economic sense, requires hacking the law, some ingenious twist in which you use the state law as it's construed 
but you give it a twist the way Creative Commons licenses allow shareable works based on copyright law, which is a twisting inside out of copyright law. The same with the general public license for free software, where it takes copyright law, which is for individual private ownership, and makes it permanently shareable. Well, we need these kinds of hacks on state law to make a friendly environment to support commenting. And I I wrote a memo, a strategy memo last year called Reinventing Law for the Commons, which focused on about eight or nine different areas where we can do this, where we need to think about commons-based law and get out of the mindset of state law, which, you know, if you talk about state law, you'll have contract law and local law and indigenous people's law and so forth. But why can't we start to group a lot of these together and say, you know what, they're a united form of commons-based law that we're trying to create, and we might just have to hack the state law in certain ways, but it's commoning that we want the law to protect. And therefore, this type of law will have a greater perceived sense of legitimacy and fairness and effectiveness than a whole body of law that has essentially been captured and co-opted by the large corporate players and market forces to serve their interests. So really, the challenge goes much deeper than just procedural or substantive law, I think. It goes to trying to reconceptualize law itself to be friendly for commoning. And I think that's a a big challenge we need to, to grapple with. One of the things that comes to mind in this conversation is to ask you, what is your vision for what it would take to really reassert and reestablish the commons within our world? What comes to mind is the levelers and the diggers who were a resistance movement to the first great enclosure and the the massive, the thousand people, 5,000 persons uh, demonstrations in the Midlands revolt, but then also the massive movement in Bolivia, I believe, when their water system was privatized and they revolted twice, actually, to get that back to a commons-based system. What do you envision it would take in our world, given all of the factors that we've been discussing today, to really reassert and invigorate the commons for the good of the people and the planet? Well, it would it would mean large numbers of people rediscovering the commons as a concept and their relationship to specific commons that matter to their everyday lives and livelihoods. So locally and regionally it would mean reconnecting with a lot of resources and devising new ways to manage them. But it, it also means waking up to the fact of enclosure and how this is such a anti-social, anti-ecological phenomena. And that's one reason I like the, the commons. It, it helps us make these things culturally visible again. And once they become visible, you there's no going back you start to see things that you didn't see before. And I think we are going to have to have this wider public recognition of enclosures and the commons-based alternatives uh, if we are going to find our way out of the neoliberal nightmare that has us in its grip right now. Fortunately, there's all sorts of fantastic pioneering projects going on around the world in Europe, Global South, and elsewhere, which I think we need to learn more about to both get inspiration as well as instruction on how to create these commons, how to uh, reclaim 
shared resources from uh, the forces of enclosure. So it will be a personal, social, and cultural movement to rediscover the commons to make it go forward. David, one of the questions that we always ask our guests is to correlate whatever subject matter they're talking about, that they're familiar with, that they're working within, to this whole idea of love-based revolution. And so as we're getting closer to the end of our show, I would really love for you to share with us your thoughts from a heart-based perspective on how this work really connects to this whole idea of love being at the heart of the type of revolution that is most needed in the world right now? Well, I think the word love can and often is abused, but I also think that it is the connective tissue that we're trying to read, the spirit we're trying to rediscover in the sense of inclusion and respect and dignity and feeling and empathy for our fellow human beings as essential for getting us out of the terrible fix that we're in as a culture, as a civilization. I think that there is such a thing as species consciousness, and it's coming to the fore as the the harm our species has inflicted on the planet becomes clear. And we are going to have to rediscover our more wholesome, loving impulses if we're going to devise the institutions that are going to save ourselves. We're not going to be able to simply intensify market-based solutions to get out of the hole we're in. We do need a revolution of values and relationships to each other. This is not just an individual transformation. It's a collective and structural one as well. So we need the institutions to help us grow in those different directions and develop ourselves, those capacities in different directions. Uh, and so, so we need to think about it in that evolutionary developmental sense. But I, you know, while I don't want, I don't see the commons as utopian. And so I want to keep an eye on the real life challenges we face now and in the short and midterm. But I do think the commons can help elicit more love-based responses, more sense of dignity and respect in a way that the conventional political establishment and its institutions, and certainly market institutions, have lost track of. So this is developing those green sprouts that are going to break the concrete and grow something new and different. But I I do believe in that capacity in human beings, and I, I think the commons is a way of starting to name something that ultimately is unnameable and very deep within us. Well, thank you, David. I think what you're getting at is very important is to find the real strength that exists in love and not just rely on pink Valentine's Day concepts of it. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, power without love is reckless and abusive, but love without power is weak and anemic. And that what we're really looking for is an empowered love, um, the kind of power that shares power, the kind of power that serves the community, the kind of power that works through love, and the kind of love that has strength and capacity, focus, vision, and intention. So thank you for bringing that up for our listeners to ponder. I want to remind everyone that we are speaking with David Bollier, who is the author of Think Like a Commoner, a wonderful book on the commons. He's also an 
activist and an independent scholar of the commons. You can find many of his articles and essays at www.bollier.org. That's B-O-L-L-I-E-R. He is also the the co-founder of the Common Strategies Group, and as you can tell from our discussion today, a wonderful person to uh, connect with to learn more about this very important subject. David, what are a few things that our listeners should think about as they're leaving today's show and going about their daily lives? (laughs) Well, all I can say is, uh, you know, dive into the commons and see what you can learn and what speaks to you. I would just mention a few other resources that might be valuable to some of the listeners. One is a recent anthology of essays that profile dozens of commons around the world called Patterns of Commoning, and that's at patternsofcommoning.org if you want to chase it down. Or you could go to uh, websites for the Common Strategies Group, which I co-founded, or the Commons Transition Plan, which are two other websites that deal with a lot of public policies and other approaches for moving the commons forward. But otherwise, I would just say uh, find the commons that matter to you in your uh, sphere of of life, whether it's local or digital or urban, and uh, see how far you can push, the. well, to use the title of your show, The Revolution Through Love. Wonderful. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. This week to David Bollier, our wonderful and insightful guest, and thanks to my brilliant uniter of heart and mind co-host, Sherry Mitchell. Our theme song is Love and Revolution with words and music by Diane Patterson and performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And I'd like to thank my incredible co-host, Rivera Sun, who never ceases to amaze me with the breadth of her knowledge for this incredible conversation today, along with David Bollier. I think that we had the opportunity to discuss some of the things that may be outside of the realm of our day-to-day talk as activists, especially love-based activists. But it just goes to show that we're able to bring that aspect into everything that we're doing. And even if the way that it's defined doesn't match the way that we define it, we can see what love looks like in action. And that's a really hopeful thing across all of these spectrums. If you enjoy this show, you might also enjoy the things that I post on my Facebook page, which can be found at Facebook dot com slash sacred instructions. It can also be found on the love and revolution webpage and on the podcast. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program, and your local radio station can broadcast it. We would love for you to ask them to do so. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website, www.riverasun.com. And we are Love and Revolution Radio on Podomatic, Stitcher, and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. David Bollier gave us lots of great places to go learn more about this subject, but there's one more resource we can't forget to mention. Wikipedia. That's right, the world's largest encyclopedia just happens to be a commons. So maybe you'll go participate in this commons-based system by researching the history, philosophy, and practice of the commons by the time we talk to you next week. What if you knew that your actions 
turn back.